All right. Hi, everybody. It's RCFB Talk 98. We're doing a Penn State show, and we're going to be talking Penn State with beat writer for The Athletic, Audrey Snyder. Now, I'm going to be joined by my usual co-hosts, JD and Sirius, and we're going to get this thing fired up. So thanks for joining us. It should be a good conversation about Penn State with someone who follows the team. JD, are you with us? Yes, I am here, uh, back and full effect again, back into Twitter spaces, excited to be here with Audrey, a fantastic journalist, excellent beat reporter for the Penn State Nittany Lions. She is, of course, at The Athletic. Very, very excited to talk to her about all things Nittany Lions today. Excellent. Audrey, thanks for joining us. You got me, guys. I appreciate it. I, I feel uh, woefully underprepared after that lineup and the 100th episode coming up. <laughs> you know, we it's sort of funny. Our first you know, six episodes are kind of vanished into the ether because we did them on Reddit's version of Twitter spaces and they didn't record at the time. So it, it probably for the better, for the better. I think that was actually the yeah, best thing that yeah. could happen to us, you know. So one thing just to warm me up, I remember this past weekend, obviously you, you live and breathe the Nittany Lions, but they won the most oh, yeah. beautiful story trophy in sports, the governor's victory bell. <laughs> I, I remember the first, I actually went to grad school at Minnesota and the first time I ever saw it, I'm like, I didn't okay. even know it was a trophy. This is like 20 years ago, but I didn't even know it was a trophy, but <laughs> it, at least. Yeah. You know, honestly, like, like I forgot about it until the game ended and I was down on the field and I was like, oh yeah, this is a trophy game. Like the most anticlimactic trophy game I've, I've ever covered. You know, serious. And I know he just finally joined in our third co-host. He wanted to make, he was comparing it. He's like, it's not that ugly. I mean, is that, I mean, serious. Have you had yeah. a chance to get up here? It's no land grant trophy. I mean, if we're being completely honest, like that's an Which entirely different stratosphere compared to the victory bell, I think. Oh, yeah, the land-grant trophy can, can definitely make the push for ugliest trophy in all of sports. Like, we can go beyond football with that. Really quick story about the land-grant trophy. One of the funniest things I've seen in my 13 seasons doing this um, must have been around 20, probably about 2016 it was. And it was, yeah, because it was the year Penn State was, was, they won the Big Ten title, but this was before they went to Indianapolis. So last game of the year. Penn State beats Michigan State, and I watched, like, two or three players try and lift the land-grant trophy, and the reaction on their faces was priceless. I mean, this thing's just massive, um, and I was like, oh, my God, these guys, like, might get hurt and not be able to play in the Big Ten title game because they tried to lift this trophy. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's, I, that's the one thing I look forward to about every Penn State-Michigan State game. <laughs> That's great. I'm now I'm waiting for someone to prank and add some extra weight on the inside of it just to throw them off for one year. But <laughs> that might hurt somebody. I mean, it's already heavy as it is. You know, for those who aren't familiar, because I mean, our audience is, is a little bit more broad. Most people are familiar with the whiteout game and it's a big mm -hmm. tradition. But could you explain the significance to those who might not be? Because I mean, we, we've heard of it, but what's the significance within Penn State and its fan base? Yeah, I mean, it, it's absolutely wild. And I, I know for a lot of people, like, it's become a bucket list item um, because, it, I mean, it looks nuts on TV. And it's one of those things where, like, I've covered so many of them live that when you go back and watch the TV copy, you're like, oh, my gosh, this is every bit as nuts as it was in person. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the thing that I think is interesting about the whiteout is the fact that when Penn State started it, it was kind of out of, like, self-defense because their crowds weren't what they are now, which I think might sound a little weird to like younger Penn state fans or to current students. Um, as Guido Dielia, who's the godfather, uh, the brain 
guy behind the whiteout explained it to me a few years ago. He's like, Audrey, you have to think of it as like, this was a down in front, kind of like an opera crowd where like the student section would get loud, but it was super sporadic. Um, and it just wasn't anything like it is right now. So they put this whole strategy together of like, all right, we have to have people wearing white because it looks really cool. But their reasoning was, all right, we're going to try this once. And if it doesn't work, like we're never doing this again. Like this is a one and done. It has to work. And fortunately for them, the first time they rolled it out. And again, this is pre-social media, which is the other thing. This is around like 07. And they actually had people stand at the exits, like student interns with signs and bullhorns telling people at the game the week before, like, wear white next week. And as Guido told me the story a few years ago, he's like, yeah, like, I was standing up there looking out of the back of the press box, just like, oh, my God, I don't know if this is going to work. Like, they changed the storefront mannequins downtown, uh, had them all decked out in white. They actually had uh, students going door to door in doom dorm rooms, which, like, obviously you can't do that anymore. But they had them doing that uh, to get people behind it. So it's, you know, Penn State's built it up now. It's their thing. It's their signature game. It's like, you know, you see the checkerboard. Uh, you see all these other crazy environments. And, like, that is their marquee signature event. Um, so that's what last week was. But I think the thing that they've started to do more recently, which has been pretty cool, uh, they do a stripe out. And that's what the Ohio State game is this week. So it's like the alternating blue and white sections. And that's looked really cool on TV, too. So um, a lot of people were kind of, not kind of, they were definitely mad that Ohio State uh, wasn't the whiteout. But again, with these noon kicks, like you want that whiteout game at night, you know? Absolutely. And I think the contrast of the stripes will look better at noon for sure. I can get the like the aesthetic choice oh, there. Yeah. You know, I remember you mentioned there's this new pregame tradition of a light show as a new mm -hmm. wrinkle to all of this. And it, how does that work? Do they just fans download an app and sync their phones or? Yeah, yeah, they have it. And it was like it was synced up to the music last week pregame. And so like it looked really cool because like it was all these lights just going crazy at once. Like it was um, I hadn't seen. Obviously, they hadn't done it before, and I don't recall seeing that at, like, any other stadiums that I've been to. Um, like, I know we're seeing it in baseball stadiums, like, after a home run, like, you know, parks will go dark and that kind of thing. Um, so it was kind of like that, but much more, like, with fan engagement. So, yeah, that, that was pretty cool. When it comes to the actual results of the whiteout game, what does that kind of do for the back end for like recruits and kids who are trying to come in and decide, hey, baby Penn State is the place that I want to go to? Has there been any kind of pronounced, I guess, emphasis mm -hmm. on this game whenever this is coming to town and they make sure, you know, if you're going to do your official visit, you need to come do the official visit for this one? Oh, yeah, that's the marquee recruiting weekend in the season. Um what we've seen Penn State do is they've been doing a lot of officials over the summer, uh, mainly because, like, they just – the staff doesn't have enough time. And obviously here you've got hotel limitations, which is a super big part of it too. Um, but you get a ton of a ton of recruits. And, like, it was crazy last week um, standing, you know, in the stadium, like, looking out at the parking lot, waiting for Penn State to arrive. You could see, like, the line of recruits. And, like, we're talking 100, 150-plus people – and, you know, James Franklin's going by one by one and shaking their hand. And then same thing during pregame warmups. Like, it, it's a comical scene when you're looking at it from the press box because it's like, here's this long line of people, like, waiting to shake his hand at the 50, all the recruits. Um, and it's just, like, one of the many wrinkles about this game. Like, I remember talking to uh, current tight end Brenton Strange when he was a recruit and he visited for the whiteout game. 
and it was one of those tight Penn State losses to Ohio State the day before. And I just remember talking to him, and I was like, what is it like when the coaching staff has to, like, you know, put on a good face and smile for you after they just have this, like, devastating loss, you know, just hours before? But that's part of the game, and I think that's kind of the the thing that I love about college football is that it's so much – there's so many things going on at once, right? And, like, it's, okay, you've got this game going on, but, oh, yeah, there's these – 17, 18, 19-year-olds sitting in the stands who are going to decide your future, uh, and that impact undoubtedly has a big a big effect on Penn State recruiting. Let's go ahead and pivot over into the game itself, because this was a huge game for Sean Clifford. It was a win over P.J. Fleck and Minnesota. What finally got Penn State to actually click and close this game out? Yeah, it was super weird because uh, if you go back and like the first three drives for Penn State, I mean, it was ugly. It was to the point where, you know, the fans were booing and they were booing loudly. Um, And it was, you know, I think you get the carryover right from Michigan. And it's like, all right, the offense was disjointed. It was a mess. Um, Not really anything was working on either side of the ball against Michigan. And then you open up your big whiteout atmosphere. Everybody's juiced. And it's like, all right, you got a pair of three and outs. And then Clifford throws a pick. Like, that's, like, pretty much as bad of a start as you can script, right? Um, and so it got really ugly. But then the thing that I thought was interesting, talking to players afterward, and the thing that they kind of kept pointing back to, and Clifford even said it, he's like, honestly, like, I didn't feel like our start was that bad, that it was just, like, a few things here and there, that if we do this, like, we're moving the chains. And one of the plays he pointed to, um, and he's right, like, if, if you go back and watch the one-third down with Mitch Tinsley, Tinsley just undercuts the route and it's like you know Tinsley even said afterward he's like yeah I wasn't aware where the sticks were like I gotta run that route deeper um so that way you know I get the first down because it was like a third and five and they pick up four yards and it's like those little things where on the surface it's like yeah it's a three and out but you're like yeah if he if he cuts that a little bit deeper um they're fine so I think it was kind of those types of things but yeah I mean Clifford's play is is the big X factor in all of this. I mean, this is the thing where you say, all right, your sixth year quarterback, so much of what we heard this year are about Clifford's intangibles and the things that he's able to do pre-snap and in the huddle and that it's like having an extension of the coaching staff on the field. Those things are all great. Um, but but what, you, what you want to see and what fans want to see are the results. And I think we saw that certainly this past week with a crazy high completion percentage. But we've also seen it when he's played Auburn. And, like, I know doing some podcasts with Auburn fans and stuff, that, that's been maddening for them because it's, like, both years Sean Clifford has, like, had the game of his life against Auburn. Um, but Penn State's going to need to have one of those marquee Sean Clifford moments against Ohio State for sure. Speaking of the, the Ohio State game, can we expect to see uh, more of a Minnesota game, Sean Clifford, or is it more likely we're going to see Michigan – and, you know, what does he need to do? Because obviously Ohio State has a phenomenal defense year in and year out and a very explosive offense. So quite the challenge to be facing even getting them at home with a stripe game. But what do we need to see Clifford do in order to uh, put Penn State into a position to win or at least stay competitive throughout the game? Yeah, the thing that we've heard so much about this week, um, and Sean even said it, he's like, you know, when our offense gets clicking, it's with tempo and a lot of it is just once they get that first first down right and then you start kind of rolling from there but I think the thing that we've seen from Penn State this year that's been good is has been that run game it's been Nick Singleton it's been Katron Allen 
And they're going to need both of those guys to play well because uh, we've heard so much this year. James Franklin said it a lot. It's something that Penn State struggled with last year because they couldn't run the ball. But that balance that they've had, and we saw it a little bit last week um, with the reverse that they ran. And James Franklin said so many times this week, too, that, hey, you know, that's just one more thing that gives a defense some pause. It's one more thing that they have to think about. And I think it's all those little things that can help you know, alleviate some of this off of Sean Clifford. Because, yeah, he has to play well. Yes, Penn State needs this receiving core to step up. And I think that's where you get some positive momentum from the Minnesota game. You know, you see the Parker-Washington jump ball touchdown. It's his first touchdown of the year. And everybody's like, all right, like, maybe that's kind of the breakout moment for him. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's consistency with this offense. It's, you know, everything that we saw in that Michigan game that was so maddening, was was that seemingly nothing worked and then your defense was on the field forever. I mean, the time of possession was crazy lopsided. Um, now, where I think Penn State is going to have some challenges, which is where I think a lot of teams have challenges with Ohio State, the, the, the Buckeyes' defensive line. Yes, this Penn State offensive line is better. Um, yes, I was at practice tonight and for Penn State, and Caden Wallace, the right tackle, was there practicing, and Sal Wormley was there practicing. And th- those are some good developments because those guys – um, were banged up in the Minnesota game. I didn't see Landon Tangwall during our brief viewing window, so kind of take that for what it's worth. We'll see. He uh, hasn't suited up since the Michigan game, so obviously you'd like to have your starting left guard back. Um, but, you know, so much is on this Penn State offensive line. Again, they've been better this year, but can they take it up another notch? Um, and that's where we're kind of – I think that, as much as anything, has an impact on Clifford and, you know, the hits that he takes and him – forcing throws and trying to make throws under duress. Well, they can get a run game going. That definitely will uh, help them kind of control tempo and and run clock a little bit, take some pressure off of Manny Diaz and his defense. Obviously, it's his first year at Penn State. But how's that defense looking? And especially what can we expect from the secondary going up against one of the probably one of the most talented wide receiver cores in the nation? Yeah, I thought there was actually a pretty funny nugget on that tonight with that receiving core. We were talking to cornerback Johnny Dixon, um, and somebody asked him what was, you know, is is this the best uh, receiving core that you guys have faced, or, like, is it the best since when? And Dixon's answer was, yeah, it's the best since Ohio State's receiving core last year, (laughs) right? Because it's like, here they are again. Um, You know, you kind of, you know what's coming with Brian Hartline's group, and, um, Yeah, the Penn State secondary is stacked. That's the strength of this defense. It was expected to be coming into the year. It's been every bit as good as advertised. Um, The matchup that I'm really excited about, that I think everybody's really excited about, is watching Joey Porter Jr. on Marvin Harrison Jr. So we can all feel really old for a second. um, But, you know, they're they're NFL fathers who we all watched play. But, yeah, these two guys I think are going to be going at it. Uh, Porter, somebody, if, if you're not super familiar with Penn State, uh, expected to be a first-round draft pick. Obviously, Marvin Harrison, the same deal. Um, so that's going to be really fun. And I think for Penn State, it just comes down to, can you make C.J. Stroud uncomfortable? And one of the things that uh, James Franklin was asked about this week was Penn State, their sack numbers and how they have you know, a really low sack total. Now, obviously, sacks don't always tell the whole story. If you look at Penn State uh, and their ability to pressure the quarterback and to make a quarterback uncomfortable, they're one of the best teams in the country in that category. Now, in sacks, they're not. But I think if you look at the pressure statistic, it bodes well for them. 
But can you kind of keep Stroud guessing? What can you do pre-snap to maybe try and confuse him? Um, so I think that cat and mouse game is going to be really, really interesting. But yeah, Penn State's secondary is loaded. Uh, safety Jair Brown is somebody who's been really, really fun to watch. But they're going to have to steal some possessions. That's the other part of this. Uh, we've seen Penn State being really good at creating takeaways this year. There's no turnover chain here. Manny Diaz did not bring that with him from Miami. Uh, but they've been really good at getting their hands on the football and being disruptive in that way. Uh, and I think that's what you're going to need. I mean, we saw them have a pick six against Michigan, um, but still, like, it, it did not matter because the offense just kept stalling out. I think one of the other things that's also really critical about this Ohio State game that I'm fascinated by is one of the big things for Penn State is they are 15 and a half point dogs in this game. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that, like, strikes me as – highly interesting, and at least I want to know from a fan base perspective, you know, I don't think Penn State necessarily wants to pay James Franklin the massive contract to be 15-point dogs to the favorite in the Big Ten, and especially after a game where you had, you know, a blowout by the Michigan Wolverines. Maybe it's not as dire as, you know, maybe the buyer's remorse that's happening at Michigan State right now with Mel Tucker or Texas A&M with Jimbo Fisher. But, you know, James Franklin did not get this massive extension to be 15-point underdogs. Uh, I guess my question here is, what would James Franklin have to do to prevent any kind of that heat coming off of him? Because obviously the win is the answer, but could he lose close and still get that off of him? Could he cover and get that off of him? What's kind of that bar there? You know, I think that when I look, like when I think back on this series, uh, you know, you see the 2016 win, the scoop and score, Penn State wins 24-21. That's like the moment where it's like, oh my gosh, how how in the world did this happen? This program's back with Saquon Barkley. They go on, they win the Big Ten. Still do not get in the college football playoff that year, which was super, super frustrating for Penn State. They get left out that year, uh, go to the Rose Bowl, lose in the Rose Bowl. But to me, the losses in 17 and 18, two games that they lost each by one point, 39, 38, and 17, uh, 27, 26, and 18. For me, those are the kinds of losses that you look back on this program and you're like, oh my gosh, how different is the trajectory for Penn State if they would have won those games in 17 and 18? Um, and I think that's when, you know, when you're gauging James Franklin's success and the success of this program we always go back to Ohio state as the measuring stick because that's the team you're always chasing year in and year out. And like, we see it on the recruiting trail with the rankings every year. It's like, Oh my gosh, Penn state's recruited at this really, really high level under James Franklin. But Oh yeah. Ohio state's recruited out of their mind. And like, that's this maddening kind of cat and mouse game that that goes on with these programs is like, okay, Penn state, you know, things are going your way in 16. It looks like they're going to break your way in 17 and 18 and they don't. And then, oh, yeah, hey, in the the last couple of years now, you've been passed by Michigan. And now Michigan's been able to crack into that upper echelon, into that playoff echelon, while Penn State's still on the outside looking in. Like, to me, that's where where it gets really interesting because you say, all right, well, Jim Harbaugh's been able to crack the code. Why hasn't James Franklin at Penn State? And, like, I think it's one of those things where, you know, you're nine years into it. And I think maybe the, the challenge here or the problem here and this might sound a little bit crazy, but the problem is that Penn State in 2016, it was like they got better way quicker than people thought, right? Because you had the sanctions, uh, coming off sanctions, 12, 13, 14, and then it's like, oh, crap, how did this happen? And it's like almost, you know, his his downfall is that they got so good so fast 
that people expected that they could sustain it and they haven't been able to. And then you add this like generational Ohio State power on top of that. Um, and it, it just makes life difficult. But yeah, I mean, you point to the contract, you point to the money, to the commitment. Uh, the other interesting thing at Penn State right now is you have a new AD this year in Pat Kraft and you have a new university president in Neely Bandaputi. So like your whole power structure has changed. And so how does football fit into that? What are some of the things that James Franklin thinks he wants and needs to get into that, that next level? That's something I'm taking a look at this week on The Athletic. That'll be my, my big Friday story. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you have to do more than just keep it close with Ohio State. Like, you've got to start winning more than one of these games every now and again. Or you're facing that reality that is maybe Penn State, the way they're currently constructed, the way Ohio State's constructed. Maybe they're only ever going to really legitimately be able to take a swing at Ohio State every three to four years, right? When Penn State's up and Ohio State maybe has a down year. Like, maybe that's just how this thing shakes out. I don't know. Um, but I think if you're Penn State, the thing that you're banking on right now is your freshman quarterback from Ohio, Drew Aller, standing on the sideline, your five-star, and saying, all right, next year, this has got to be the guy who gets it done. You know, 2024, this has got to be the guy. Um, because otherwise, I think you might see those windows where it's like, all right, you have your window of opportunity every few years. And that's kind of the other part about what really was such a bad blow for Penn State in 2020, that COVID year, because I think that was the year that Penn State could have potentially pushed Ohio State. And then obviously you have no fans. Micah Parsons opts out. Penn State loses Journey Brown before the season even starts with a medical condition. And like things just fizzled from there. So it felt like they were positioned to kind of really take a good swing in 2020. And it just didn't happen. Audrey, one of the uh, kind of reputations I think that – James Franklin developed pretty early on, both in his tenure at Vanderbilt and kind of early on in those Penn State years, is that, you know, he's a great recruiter, phenomenal motivator, mm -hmm. getting guys to believe that they can win. That was a really key part of his success, his success at Vanderbilt. But in terms of, like, X's and O's, despite his past positions as an offensive coordinator, it seemed like really he relies heavily on his offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator in terms of implementing, you know, good offenses, good defenses on that side of the ball and actually getting the team to perform those on when it comes to X's and O's. And of course, you know, he lost Brent Pry, defensive coordinator mm -hmm. um, and a longtime staff member to Virginia Tech as a head coach this past offseason. And Josh Gaddis a few years ago, who seemed to be a rising star and had a really good tenure going to the you know rival Michigan. What does it look like with this current staff? Do you think that the pieces are in place there from a coaching perspective to kind of elevate the team enough or is that still a little bit of a you know a weak spot yeah I mean it's interesting too because like you can add to that kind of that coaching tree you have Charles Huff at Marshall who was here he was part of that you know that Penn State staff in the, in the uh, Big Ten title game run you have Tyler Bowen um, who was somebody who then went from here to Jacksonville was on Urban Meyer's staff for a hot second uh, and so like you just you have all these offshoots right obviously Ricky Ronnie at Old Dominion um, you have all those offshoots that's also like, that's the sport, right? I mean, I think for Penn State fans, for some of them, at least maybe the older fans, it's still a little bit jarring to see all these coaching changes because they were used to no change and so much stability for like ever um, that it's a little bit probably interesting and jarring for them to see. But yeah, I mean, I think you wonder how long is someone like Manny Diaz going to be here? Because, you know, obviously you'd imagine there's head coaching aspirations still there. 
Uh, is he here for another year? We'll see. I mean, maybe it's certainly possible that he's here for another year. Um, the thing that's been interesting has been with Mike Yersich and the offense. And, you know, Sean Clifford, this is the second year as a, or his first year as a starter where he's had the same offensive coordinator for back to back years. I mean, that's rattling. Like when you have a, a sixth year quarterback and you're like, oh my gosh, yeah, like, this guy was here with Joe Moorhead. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's pretty crazy when you kind of try to figure out his career trajectory and align that with all the different OCs who have come through here. But we also saw that last week where it's like, oh, hey, Kirk Shiraka's back in town. And oh, yeah, he was here for a hot second during the COVID season. He was the OC. Um, and so you look at all these other pieces and how they kind of fit together. And to me, that offensive coordinator spot is the one where it's just been so up and down. And we see it with Mike Yersich, where one of the things I reported out when Penn State hired Yersich two years ago was that James Franklin really wanted to hire Yersich, uh, but instead ended up hiring Sharaka that previous cycle. Um, that allegedly the move got blocked. And so, you know, Ohio State is where Yersich was at the time. They blocked the move. Uh, he was the quarterback's coach and like pass game coordinator then. Um, and so, you know, they end up, James finally gets the guy he wants in Mike Yersich. And then last year was a struggle. So to me, it's still like the second half of this year, I think is where it's like, all right, either Yersich and this offense elevates or you got to reconsider once again, the future of this offense and where you go from here. Now, the other side of that, Yersich was really instrumental in Penn State being able to bring in and sign Drew Aller, the five-star quarterback. So, so that's the other part of it, right? It's like, you know, your one job is coaching the talent. The other part is identifying and getting the talent. Um, and so that's where I think Penn State gets really interesting because they have recruited insanely well. Um, and that's been like the thing that last year, that was what kept the fan base really like engaged and energized was like, all right, this year's freshman class is going to make a difference. And they have. Um, but when you're constantly comparing that to Ohio State and Michigan, life gets difficult. So, yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're any. They're on solid footing now um, with their staff, with their coordinators. But I still think, like, with with the OC spot, you want to see more that second half of the season. You want to see um, whether or not the Minnesota game was a step in the right direction for Mike Yersich in this offense, or maybe if there's something different that happens next year when it's, hey, Drew Aller and Mike Yersich, the guy that he recruited that he really wanted, does that make a difference? I don't know, but I think that's what so many people are kind of waiting to see. Well, either way, they are very, very far ahead of where they were when uh, John Donovan was the offensive coordinator for oh, those uh, those first couple of years. That was a blast from the past. Yeah, I think he actually he got fired. God, I was coming back from a game, and I remember I was in the airport when he got fired, and I was like, can these things, like, they never happen at good times, you know? <laughs> where were you when you found out USC and UCLA were going to be joining the Big Ten? Uh, I was supposed to be on vacation. Uh, I was not on vacation, it <laughs> turns out. Yeah, I was supposed to be off that week, and it was uh, it was funny. We kind of had like an emergency Slack channel, and we're all like, "Oh yeah, let's just rescind our vacation days." Like this is kind of a kind of a big deal. Oh man. Uh, yeah. So that was that was one of those. Um, you know, Penn State had a crazy run for a while where New Year's Eve was like you're afraid to go anywhere because when Bill O'Brien left, it was New Year's Eve. I kid you not, it was midnight like literally New Year's Eve midnight and the rumor hits that like he's leaving for Houston. Um, I was on actually on a flight then I was at the Under Armour game. I was coming back. And so O'Brien leaves at midnight. Uh, when Saquon Barkley declared for the NFL draft, it was New Year's Eve after the Fiesta Bowl. 
Um, so it was super late at night and I was like, okay, New Year's Eve, here we go again, ready to go out to dinner um, on the West Coast. I'm like, oh my God, it's almost midnight. Barkley sends out his Twitter note that he's leaving. Thankfully, I had the story pre-written. Um, they had kids commit at like midnight on New Year's. Like, it's just one of those holidays now where anymore I'm like, thank God once the bowl ban lifted, I was like, I'm probably going to be at a bowl game because you just couldn't make any New Year's Eve plans with this program for the longest time. Oh, man. You know, it's so funny. We had Wilner on, gosh, back in July, you know, not long after mm-hmm. he broke it. And he could, but we had to wait for him to come back from vacation. And I joked with him. I'm like, so <laughs> did you just hit tweet without even looking behind you, like slow motion with the explosions behind <laughs> you, know, like, and yeah, just like, walk hey, off? <laughs> I'm about to blow up the college football world. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> Every, I mean, everybody who's ever reported anything was not like in a good way, like both complimentary and kind of a little jealous, like hot damn. You know, that's a tweet that changes everything. Um, Oh, yeah. Modification days went up in smoke uh, this summer when that one happened. Oh, goodness. You know, Andre, we respect your time. I know you you might be able to stay a little later, but I wanted to do a quick time check with you. Okay, cool. you're fine. You're fine. Quick station ID for those of you listening. This is RCFB Talk 98. We're talking Penn State football with Audrey Snyder from The Athletic. It's been a great conversation so far. You know, we've been talking a bit. I, the question I have for you right now is what is the best case scenario for Penn State this season at this point now that we're about midway? I mean, I think you always have to shoot for the upset of Ohio State and then state your case to get in the playoff, right? Like that's always going to be your best case scenario. Uh, realistically, I think it's 10 and two and a new year six bowl game. Like I think that, I mean, let's be honest. I thought this was an eight and four team coming into this season, maybe nine and three. I went eight and four because I said, they don't get the benefit of the doubt after the last two seasons in which I thought they'd do better than they did. Um, So, you know, I went eight and four. It certainly looks like they, they should overshoot that mark. Now, I'm sure the Penn State fans listening are probably like, oh, yeah, there, there might be a slip up along the way somewhere because that's kind of how these themes, how these things have seemed to play out um, in previous years. But I mean, I, I think that's the other the other point of this is you look at the playoff and James Franklin has said this all, many times and I do agree with him on this. When you look at the playoff, it's completely reimagined how fans gauge and view a successful season. Um, if this was the pre-playoff era and you said Penn State was going to go 10-2, and two, people would be happy. Uh, but I think now you're like, oh, they didn't get in the playoff. Why does it matter? And I think it's just like kind of reframing expectations. Now, the flip side of that is when you go back and look, and my colleague at The Athletic, Max Olson, did this, uh, Penn State would have been one of the biggest beneficiaries, uh, maybe the biggest beneficiary of an expanded college football playoff. Um, And you just look at where they've been in this era with these New Year's Six games, but always knocking on the door. They get left out in in 16 when they win the Big Ten title. Um, You know, that changes things, too. You know, once you expand the playoff, they're going to always be in that conversation, seemingly. Um, But, yeah, I think right now you'd have to say 10-2, and New Year's Six bowl game. Um, You take the win there. The other thing that they are doing this year, which is going to help them, although I'm sure many people listening, they haven't been doing it enough to their liking, um, is getting Drew Aller the game experience, getting him those reps. You know, he's already burned his red shirt. He's, he's played. He's looked well in those spurts that we've seen him. Uh, but unless something crazy happens, like a significant injury to Sean Clifford, like they're not going to change their starting quarterback when you still have a New Year's Six bowl game opportunity. Like I don't see that scenario playing out. Uh, now, if, if they drop 
three games, then I think we, we maybe, maybe see that. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I think that's when you talk about expectations in the future, that five-star quarterback is what more people want to see um, and whether or not they can get him involved in more games and start building for a, a run next year and the year after that. Um, I think that's what you also have to kind of keep in mind too. You mentioned the possibility of going to a New Year's Six game. At this point, does it matter necessarily which one that they go to? Or is this something that, you know, like other Big Ten teams, like I would imagine a Michigan, if they can't go to the playoffs, wants to go to the Rose Bowl. Same thing with a lot of other historical Big Ten programs. Is that something that Penn State also kind of reveres more so than any other bowl games? Yeah, I mean, the, the, to me, like the New Year's Six bowl games, like that's a hell of a good accomplishment, you know, and like, you know, I always go back and it, it kind of feels surreal now because we didn't know what was going to happen at the time. But that Cotton Bowl game, like that was one of the craziest, most dominant football games I've ever seen in terms of Micah Parsons goes off, Journey Brown goes off. And at that moment, you're just like, whoa, this program is going to be really well positioned next year to push for a playoff spot. And then obviously COVID happens and everything just goes awry for Penn State from there. Um, but I mean, that game was significant. That game was meaningful. I don't know how you're a fan of, of this program, of the sport, and you, like, watch that game, and you're like, oh, that wasn't good enough. Like, you know, I, I'm sure I understand the, the want of, hey, could have used this earlier in the year, for sure. Uh, but, like, that was a dominant performance, and those New, New Year's Six games absolutely mean something to Penn State. Um, you see Penn State fans travel really, really well to bowl games, regardless of where they are, but I definitely think fans um, – want to go to those New Year's Six games more so. Selfishly, just from a media perspective, uh, the Cotton Bowl is amazing. Like, all these New Year's Six games are awesome in terms of, like, a media perspective. Uh, like, it was really, really cool when I got to cover, you know, the, their game at the Rose Bowl. You're like, man, this is awesome. Even if the weather was really crappy the whole week Penn State was there, you're still like, all right, cool, I'm in L.A. and I'm not in State College uh, in, in early January. So, like, that was – that was fun. Uh, but yeah, the Cotton Bowl is just crazy, crazy entertaining. Um, yeah, that that to me is like, I never thought I would say this because it was like Fiesta was really cool. Rose was really cool. But like the Cotton Bowl might be, not might be, is my favorite bowl game of, of the New Year Six that I've been to at least. Oh, wow. That is a, <laughs> that is Let a. Let me tell you, a... like they're, they, their media stuff is nuts. Like they, they put on a private Miranda Lambert concert for us. Just as, really? you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it might be like the best kept uh, media secret is the Cotton Bowl. And that's saying something, because again, like the Rose Bowl was amazing. And like, they're super hospitable. Uh, Fiesta Bowl, also same thing. Amazing. But then you know, JD like, oh, is man, privately Dallas. telling me that this is absolutely a well-known thing among people. He's in, he's from yeah. the Dallas Fort Worth area. So he's like, Oh okay. yeah, no, yeah. no, there that's, and I'm not shocked. I've covered like big 12 media day and conference USA media day out there. And there, you know, it's a serious, we were kind of joking. They should just move everything to be based in the Dallas Fort Worth area because they're so good at hosting these things. So, but I to hear that. Not. Yeah, like, exactly. I kid you not. I did not leave the media hotel with the exception of like covering a practice, which was at the stadium and covering the game. Cause like there was no need to leave. It was like everything you needed. was right there. Um, like you just did not have to leave. Like it was so accommodating. It was super, super nice. And they just like shuttled you everywhere, you know? 
Oh, absolutely. And I mean, again, on top of that, like I've covered the Ohio State Southern California game. I've covered that Missouri Oklahoma State game at the Cotton Bowl. The media hospitality at that game is second to none. And it goes for everything from picking up to credentials to shuffling around from place to place. Very well marked out, extremely helpful staff. Uh, I know that we're kind of spilling on one of our secrets right now, but uh, it's not a joke. Audrey is telling the truth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm over here overhyping the cotton ball. Now everybody's going to want to cover it. Yeah. We, you know, I, I'm laughing because they were teasing me because in the press box of the national championship in Indianapolis, they put all the St. Oh gosh, what's it called? The St. Elmo's oh, the Saint shrimp. Elmo. Yeah. They dumped all the shrimp out there and they were all teasing me. So they're serving you room temperature shrimp. And I'm like, it's actually <laughs> chilled. It's not on a bed of ice, but <laughs> it's like, no shrimp one's going to want to Indiana, be- most importantly. <laughs> The finest shrimp of them all. Yeah, say you haven't lived until you've had like cold Domino's pizza in a press box at like three in the morning, right? (laughs) Absolutely. You know, we actually had a good question in the replies, not directly to this tweet, although, I mean, it's so funny to know how they have an ability to do some chat functions in the Twitter space. In this one, I just dropped your own tweet, Audrey, showing that handshake line that you mentioned way ago of James Franklin going through in the whiteout game. But in another tweet, what, um, Justin Gasper asked, what's your biggest takeaway from the difference between the last two games? Is Michigan that good? Is Minnesota that bad? And is Penn State that inconsistent? Yeah, that's a really good question. I do think Michigan is that good. Um, that, to me, was like the, it was like that, whoa, Michigan, like, they are, I mean, to me, and it's just the style of their offense is so interesting because it's like, kind of like a stereotypical Big Ten, like, big offensive line. They're going to run the football. They're going to ram it down your throat. And they did. And I remember uh, sitting, you know, in the press box next to my colleague in like the second quarter, like early in the second quarter, I was like, Michigan could literally just run the ball every single play for the rest of the game. And we couldn't even complain about it because Penn state just couldn't stop it. Like they were just that dominant that it was like, yeah, just keep running the ball. Like I get it. Um, But JJ McCarthy did make some nice throws. Um, One throw that I still don't like it looked like from our vantage point it was going to get picked off it just kind of lobbed it in um becomes a completion and you're like all right it's just maybe one of those days uh if if you're Penn State but yeah I, I mean to me Michigan is definitely that good the other thing with Minnesota especially without Tanner Morgan they were so one-dimensional that Penn State said you know what come into this game they went with with Abdul Carter got his first start, the true freshman linebacker, and James Franklin was like, yeah, we're going to have three box linebackers out there because we know they're going to run the ball at us the entire game. And they did. And to Penn State's credit, they were able to stop him. I mean, Mo Abraham got his 100 yards, which he does to everyone. Um, But, you know, they were really able to limit him in the damage. So I think certainly Minnesota personnel-wise was really, really limited. I do think Michigan is that good that they will absolutely, again, push for that college football playoff spot. Can't wait to watch Michigan and Ohio State at the end of the year. That's always going to be going to be wild. Uh, but I think for Penn State, I, to me, what's, what's so weird with them is I really was convinced. I knew that Auburn wasn't that good, but I really was convinced after watching that game um, that it was like, all right, Penn State is here. They're really going to have a legitimate year. You know, they're going to push for a spot in the playoff after Auburn. And it was just kind of like, oh, like they came back down to earth. They weren't as dominant the next couple of weeks. The offense started to stall. Then you have the bye week and then Michigan happens. So I'm still like, for me, the jury's still out on Penn State. Um, 
the second half of the season is really like we're in the midst of that stretch where if they come out Saturday and, you know, Ohio State just beats the brakes off of them, then I'm like, all right, Penn State's got some problems. Uh, but if they come out, if they keep it close, if, if you see signs in that game that you're like, all right, like Penn State might be able to close the gap in the next couple of years, then I think you come away from that game feeling pretty good about it. But based off of the way that people felt and watching that, that the way in which Penn State lost to Michigan, um, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it gets out of hand uh, on Saturday um, because Ohio State is that good. But if you're looking for, for something, kind of a silver lining here, these teams have always matched up well or better than they should have. When you go back and look at, you know, the last seven, eight matchups with these two teams, they don't match up like a Penn State-Michigan. Um, for whatever reason, whatever style of football it is, these guys tend to match up better. But the caveat to that might be Ohio State's trenches. They're even better than usual this year. So that that could be the thing that maybe maybe makes it a bit of a blowout. Audrey, I know that we're getting closer to that 45-minute marker, but I do have a question specifically for media access. You've mentioned before the ability to talk to players after games, being able to mm -hmm. observe practice. We've seen a lot of media access get cut from a lot of Power 5 programs. What's been the power of having that type of access at a program like Penn State, and how does that help you with your journalism? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Like, our access is not fantastic. Like, it is a challenge. Um, like, for example, one of the interesting things with Penn State is there are so many people that cover this program. Like, it is one of the largest beats in America. And the way the state is set up, not everybody lives here. So I'm based in State College. I've always been based in State College. Um, but, you know, we've got people in, in Pittsburgh. We've got people in Philadelphia. We've got people in little towns in between that cover this program because it is, it is the biggest show in town, right? Like, yeah, you've got your pro markets on either side of the state. Um, but when you have a stadium that seats 107,000 plus people, you don't just ignore it, you know? Um, so so for, for us, the thing that's interesting is that because the beat's so spread out, like we always operated with a lot of conference calls for players. Like during the week, we don't go to the facility and talk to players in person. Like we didn't do that before COVID. So during like the COVID season, we started using Zoom and we were talking to players on Zoom, which is like at least good because they can see you. Um, but like, for example, we still use Zoom throughout the week to talk with players just because not everyone lives here. Like what's really abnormal here, like talking to my colleagues who cover other teams, uh, James Franklin's Tuesday news conference used to start with a phone line where they would take questions and they did this the same way with Paterno, same thing with O'Brien. They'd take questions from people who don't live here that cover the team. Right. So then they come to the people in the media room. So now they do that on Zoom. So like, I'll be sitting in the media room on a Tuesday and they'll take questions from Zoom first. And now they have like video boards in the back of the room. So it's just kind of funny because it's like Franklin's getting these virtual questions, right? And then like we're sitting there in the room kind of staring at them, you know, while they go through maybe six or seven questions before they get to the room. Uh, but that's just kind of the unique setup here because like this place is pretty isolated. You're in central Pennsylvania. Um, now, we see practice once a week, maybe 15-ish minutes. You know, um, we, we see basic, like, the same, pretty much same drills every single week. Um, like, we don't see 11-on-11 stuff. Um, same thing, like, preseason. Like, they're pretty restrictive in that regard. Um, yeah, I think any, you asked any reporter, we'd always want more access. You asked any reporter, we'd love to talk to people in person. Um, 
but I think that's just kind of the, the challenges with it. And the fact that it's, I'm sure it's easier for the players to hop on zoom and talk to us as opposed to, Hey, we need you to, to be at the facility to talk to a scrum of people or whatever it may be. So like, I get it. Um, but it's also no doubt it's a challenge when you're on a beat with this many people um, and you're looking for unique story angles. It's hard, right? Cause you ask a question on zoom, everybody now has your audio and it's like, cool, man, I asked the question. Like I need that, but maybe, you know, maybe 15 other people used it. Like that's just, that's just the world we're living in. And that's just kind of everywhere too. Speaking of coach Franklin and uh, his interview questions, is he still doing the, I only talk about the next opponent from Sunday through midnight on Saturday and no other opponents on the schedule. And then we'll move on to the next game. And uh, if he is, how long did it take Penn State journalists to kind of, you know, figure out that it was just a waste of time asking about anything else? He he's not as rigid with it, I guess, as he used to be. I mean, it's still like, like, you know, you know what you're going to get. Right. And you know that he doesn't want to talk about injuries. And that's like the thing that hasn't changed from day one. But we still keep asking. Right. Because that's our job. We have to ask. And sometimes he does answer the question, which is always kind of my rebuff to. Like, why do you ask me this? It's like, because honestly, sometimes you do answer it, even though I don't think you mean to. Um, but yeah, like, for example, tonight, uh, we had to ask him about the, the the 2023 schedule, of course, comes out today for the Big Ten. Uh, Penn State had been super heated. James Franklin and AD Pat Kraft, they'd opened up seven consecutive years. They've opened Big Ten play on the road. They were really ticked about it. They made it a point to tell us how ticked off they were about this at Big Ten Media Days in July. Sure enough, schedule comes out today. Penn State is opening Big Ten play on the road in 2023 uh, at Illinois. So James Franklin wasn't happy about it, but also like knew that he was going to get the question tonight because of just the oddity of the schedule coming out during the middle of the season. Um and so he was asked about it and he's like, yeah, like I prefer to not talk about this right now, but like he understood it. Um, and the thing that he did this week that was actually really funny, he was going through like the, the players of the game and he's like, yeah, Sean Clifford was also named the uh, Big Ten Offensive Player of the Week. And he literally paused for seven or eight seconds of silence, which like felt like a minute when you're sitting there and he's just kind of staring at the room. But he just wanted to emphasize his point about Sean Clifford and he knew, you know, the fans that had asked him and so many questions about Clifford and why isn't Drew Aller starting and all that. But he said the same thing Wednesday night. He's like, you know, listen, Pat Kraft issued a statement on the schedule. Um, I could sit here and give you guys a long pause if you want. And we all just kind of laughed. I'm like, yeah, sure. Um, so not as rigid with with the, the whole uh, next opponent thing, but still very, very tunnel visioned with that. Um, the thing is he did change up, which again, like complete weird things that only your beat writers pay attention to. Probably he did change up his weekly tweet. It's no long like team opponent name, team opponent name, team opponent name, team opponent name a million times. Um, it's now like we need everyone to go one and oh this week or something like that. Um, cause he was getting a lot of flack last year when they were losing and like, it would always be like the team name, team name, team name, team name. Then the opponents would like come into the comments and it just became a whole thing. So he <laughs> did mix that up. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have to admit, you know, as a side note, it's been amusing to watch programs start to actually lean into kind of zany humor with their yeah. own tweets, which they used to be, I think a little too, you know, a little too dry, a little too stoic and, and stodgy, 
You know, so how just kind of as we sort of slowly wrap this up, but I had a question for you. How important is Chad Powers to the future of this program? <laughs> you know, that is like one of the one of the most brilliant things that they've done. And obviously, like they didn't know that it was going to be as big of a deal as it was. Right. But like they totally leaned into it. Um, you have this whole like funny video. This whole thing takes place. Eli Manning was actually here uh, for the whiteout this past weekend. So that was like really neat. That hadn't happened before. Um, so you have Eli Manning on the sideline. You have this video that goes viral. That's like really funny. He shows your program in a different light. Um, but the thing that Penn State was able to do, or that rather their collective was able to do, they were able to monetize that. And they pushed out these Chad Powers t-shirts and they started selling them at the stadium. And Penn State's collective was then able to use all the money that they, that they raised off of these t-shirt sales uh, to then spend that money. They're going to give that money back. I don't know if they've done it yet. I don't think they have, but the intent is to give that uh, money to Penn State's walk-ons. And like it, these, like these shirts were crazy popular around here. Um, and I had talked to the folks at the collective uh, when they started doing it, and they're like, "Listen, like, yeah, we hope that you know we we can do something for the walk-ons with this money." Um, and I have to, I don't know what the number is up to right now. I wrote about it a few weeks ago, um, but yeah, they were able to to have a significant amount of money to the point where I want to say, spitballing off of my head, each walk-on was going to get like at least 800 bucks um it might even honestly might even be over a thousand right now but i haven't haven't looked in a couple of weeks but yeah it was it was super popular that's wonderful <laughs> yeah right like like just crazy things like that where it's like and, and i like before it happened somebody had told me they were like yeah eli manning was on campus today and i was like well why right like it makes no sense um and they also the other cool thing they were able to get a, a video out of that for their punter, Barney Amore was put on scholarship this preseason and Eli was here and Eli like delivered the video uh, and told Barney that he was on scholarship. So like, again, like a pretty, you know, pretty cool moment out of this. Yeah. You know, Audrey, we've really appreciated this conversation. You have so much knowledge and we've, we've just, I've been wrapped by listening to cover all of this. Um, as we wrap up though, could you tell our audience where they can find your work and follow you on Twitter and social and, and all of that mm -hmm. stuff? Yeah, for sure. Um, so you can follow my work at theathletic.com. Um, got a bunch of Penn State stories coming out. Typically, I do more kind of enterprising, bigger picture looks. Um, I got a pretty interesting story coming out on Friday about Penn State and their facility arms race and kind of how they try and compete and stack up with the Ohio States of the world in this like 365 day a year race. Like, right, we all focus on Saturday, but there's so much more that goes into it year round but that's at theathletic.com and then you can find me on twitter at odd snyder a-u-d snyder s-n-y-d-e-r four um if you don't know the four i'll tell you let you know a little secret i'm a huge green bay packers fan so literally this has been my screen name since like the aol days so it's just kind of stuck with me now. <laughs> i guess we can't change it now so now it's just a bad look right Oh, I love it. That's great. <laughs> you know, and I can, by the way, I've enjoyed your writing a lot. If, if I encourage all of you out there to read because it's when it's obvious why you teach sports writing and news writing, because you, you have a knack for it. I mean, I, I, I can't claim to be a great journalist writer, but I, I've been an instructor myself for a dozen years. It's like, yeah, it's just, it's something where the passion comes through and it's clear from your writing. So anyway, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I, I appreciate it. And I love all the, all the stuff that y'all do um, for this beautiful, quirky, weird sport that, that is college football that we all enjoy. I appreciate the conversation.
Amen. And who knows, maybe, you know, as absurd as the Minnesota Penn State trophy was, maybe we'll get something from between like UCLA and Penn State. They'll become oh. like blood rivals, you know, make it ridiculous. No, like, do you do like a suntan lotion bottle mixed with like a snowflake? What's the, yeah, like, I don't, we're going to have to figure something out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Arroyo Valley or the Happy Seiko. I, I don't even know. I'm trying <laughs> to think of, you know, the two. Uh... <laughs> no, that's great. Well, Audrey, thanks again for joining us. No problem, guys. Take care. On behalf of myself, Bob Akhairi, on behalf of my co-hosts, J.D. Moore and Sirius, thank you all for joining us. It's always a pleasure having these shows with you. Now, I'm going to hang up and listen. <laughs>